This is Radio Influence, podcasting redefined. Welcome back to the Lawfather podcast. Uh, we are here at Lawfather headquarters as we start another great new week. And a lot of things going on in the news. Uh, still, uh, you know, all the social justice issues, all the things with police and the interactions and everything else. And for today's show, which on our show, I always ask you to rate, review and subscribe to this podcast, which does help us out a lot. And, uh, and check us out on social media. And social media is where a lot of these things are showing up. I think social media may be fueling some of the fire, if you will, as we look into some of the social justice issues, because there's a platform now, uh, which I think was different from way back in the day. But I also think that's, that's a good thing. So I want to look at a few things. Uh, and this really comes from an article that I was reading recently about Ferguson, Missouri. And I want to take a step back and reintroduce all of you who are listening to the events that happened in Ferguson, Missouri. And this was back uh, in 2014, August of 2014. And if we fast forward to where we are right now, the officer that was involved in that case uh, shot an individual and the individual died and the officer was then charged. And the article that I was reading recently was from the state attorney. And the state attorney was saying, hey, look, I've tried this case three times. We have had three trials on this particular case. And we've had a mistrial three times. And you look at it and go, okay, well, what's a mistrial? A mistrial means that you had an actual full-on jury trial. Okay, you could have a mistrial with a, a bench trial, which is with a judge. But in this case, in a criminal case like this, we're talking about a jury trial. So they go in and they have three jury trials and in all three jury trials the jury finds uh, or not that the jury found uh, because the jury actually didn't find anything and that was the problem uh, the jury became what's known as being deadlocked which means they couldn't come to a unanimous decision so let's look at it because uh, some of you may not remember the the Ferguson case and here's what it is there was uh, an individual who was in the street law enforcement rolls up they tell him to use the sidewalk there's a struggle that ensues, and the officer then shoots the individual. Now, if we take a step back even further from that in the timeline, prior to that, uh, it, it appeared that there was surveillance video that showed that individual. Uh, I don't know if uh, it was truly a robbery. It, it looks like there was some some sort of some sort of theft at a convenience store. I don't want to oversell it, calling it a robbery if it wasn't, um, because they are very different things when we're talking about robbery and theft. Uh, burglar, excuse me, robbery carries uh, kind of a violent offense to it. Theft, not so much. But you know, as a law enforcement officer, you walk up on somebody. Look, this person knows what they've done or not done in the past. A law enforcement officer may not. And sometimes from my experience, it can contribute to the way a scenario plays out because you may start out with a very innocent interaction, but that person thinks, Oh, they got me. They found me. And this guy's coming to arrest me. And I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to go to prison. Uh, I've been in that situation. It's, it's definitely, uh, very interesting. Um, you know, I, I can tell you I had one one time where it was a, a domestic situation. Uh, he said, she said, nobody had any injuries. Uh, both of their stories were uh, equally plausible, but 
equally had the same amount of holes in them. And I remember the guy saying, I can't go to jail. I have a daughter. I don't want to go away from my daughter. I don't want to lose my daughter. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to go to jail. And he goes, Hey, I have the whole incident on video and we go and he takes me to the room where the video's in. And I started looking around the room because, Hey, as a, as a good law enforcement officer, you start to understand your surroundings and you start to piece together when things aren't fitting right. And, you know, one of the things that you're taught a lot is, Hey, when someone says, I can't go to jail, I, there's a reason. And they, they put a reason behind it. I, I can't go to jail because of my daughter. You, you start saying, okay, this has a high likelihood of, of going bad very quickly. Uh, and so, you know, here's this guy, he doesn't want to go to jail. And, and maybe, maybe he actually did uh, hit the, the woman who was in the house, right? That was part of the domestic. And, and to this day, I couldn't tell you whose version of events were, were the true version of events, or maybe it was some combination. And most likely it was some combination of their two versions. Okay. But kind of neither here nor there for the story, because I started looking around and I see boxes of ammunition all around the room. And I have my sergeant who's standing behind me and I'm talking to uh, the guy and I go to him, I go, Hey, where's the gun that, that goes with all of these bullets and guy looks down at his waistband and I go, Oh no, I'm thinking, Oh no, in my head, this is about to go really bad, really quickly. Um, and I remember yelling gun, gun, gun. I know my Sergeant behind me pulled his gun. And my first thing was, and I had, I had done a lot of hand to hand type training, uh, hand to hand combat type training. So my first instinct was I'm going to grab the guy. And lo and behold, as I'm grabbing him, he is reaching down to grab that gun. A struggle ensues. We get him, we get the gun, we get it all separated. Everything's all good. He ended up going to jail for that and for uh, the domestic, okay? But seemingly in the beginning, very mundane situation, right? Really didn't need to go there. Uh, We were actually, if you look at the mindset going into it, yes, we were called by a 911 call, right? But the mindset going into it was, hey, you know, stories don't match up, can't make any sense of it probably not going to make an arrest on this one, especially if the video shows that this, you know, shows which story is the correct or it just in essence shows a, a full version of a correct story on video. Uh, and it went from that to what was a little bit of a violent situation and could have ended far worse. So you never know what's going on in the person's mind uh, behind, right? And so that's how Ferguson seems to have played out potentially. Uh, but let's bring it back to what we're going to talk about today. And it's juries and jury instructions and what that all looks like. So as I mentioned in Ferguson, that state attorney has tried that case three times. And he said, "Ah, I'm not charging this guy again. We're not doing it. We've done this dance three times. Uh, You know, and it costs taxpayer money each time you have a trial. We're just not going to do it. Okay. Three times is a lot of times to come up with the same result. And so I want to take that and I want to look at the Minneapolis shooting. Okay. Because, you know, from a legal perspective, it, it brings up some really interesting questions. Okay. And we have to separate the social justice piece of this from the, the legal side of it, right? The legal side is a whole lot different. We operate under a whole different set of rules. Okay. And those rules are actually meant to protect. Now, is the system perfect? No. Is it 
seemingly one of the best systems in the world? I would say yes. Okay. Uh, it's really designed, and I, I know I've mentioned this before, but it's really designed to protect the innocent, if you will. Uh, the theory behind it is, is that if we let a, a guilty person go free because of the way the system's structured, that's better than sending an innocent person to prison. Now, look, I, I know that there are, are instances where there are innocent people who have gone to prison. Okay. Uh, and I, I, a lot of that is a byproduct, I think, of where we are today in science and technology with DNA and those types of things. Okay. Uh, put those to the side for a moment because you'd have to do a really deep dive look into that. And maybe we'll do that in a, in a future podcast in terms of let's take a deep dive look into how the science plays into some of those convictions that have been overturned. Okay. But let's look at it just from the perspective of take the science out of it. Okay. Take, look at it from the theoretical. Theoretically, we would rather set a guilty person free than send an innocent person to jail or prison. Okay. That, that's what the system is. That's how the system works. And when we look at it from the criminal perspective, we're looking at it from proof beyond a reasonable doubt. That's what it is. That's what a, a prosecutor has to prove. And all the defense has to do is go, I've created some doubt, just a little bit, tiny, 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 little bit. That's it. Okay. So let's look at this because in a trial, you're going to have an opening and both attorneys are going to get up and say, this is what happened. Then you're going to have direct examination by the state. You're going to have cross-examination by the defense. Then it's going to flip and you're going to have uh, direct examination by the defense, cross-examination by the state attorney, closings by both parties, state and defense. Okay. Then the judge is going to go to the jury and they're going to read jury instructions. And most judges they'll take, and I have them right here. For those of you on video, you can see I have the paper here in front of me. They will read these jury instructions really just as is. Now, how it works in, in real life is both sides get together with the judge and agree to how and, and what the exact wording is on the jury instructions. But uh, the state of Florida has standardized jury instructions. And so the judge will read this. To prove the crime of second-degree murder, the state must prove the following three elements beyond a reasonable doubt. Number one, the victim is dead. Number two, the death was caused by the criminal act of the defendant. Number three, there was an unlawful killing of victim by an act imminently dangerous to another and demonstrating a deprived mind without regard for human life. And it defines some of these things, okay? So it defines what an act is, and an act includes a series of related actions arising from and performed pursuant to a single design or purpose. And then an act is imminently dangerous to another and demonstrating a deprived mind if it is an act or series of acts that a... And, and those of you might be able to hear that. Uh, Siri apparently thought I was talking to her. Um, <laughs> so uh, an act that is imminently dangerous to another and demonstrating a depraved mind if it is an act or series of acts that a person of ordinary judgment would know is reasonably certain to kill or do a serious bodily injury to another and is done from ill will, hatred, spite, or an evil intent and is of such a nature that the act itself indicates an indifference to human life. In order to convict of second-degree murder, it is not necessary for the state to prove the defendant had an intent to cause death. And, and that's an important part. And that is the difference right there. That one little line is your difference between second-degree murder first degree murder. 
Okay, in first degree murder, you have to prove that the intent was to cause death. All right, and there are uh, a few other pieces here, uh, but the, the most pertinent one is if you have a reasonable doubt about whether the defendant had a praised mind without regard for human life because he or she acted in the heat of passion based on an adequate provocation, you should not find him or her guilty of second-degree murder. Then, if you find the defendant guilty of second-degree murder, you must also determine whether the state proved beyond a reasonable doubt that he or she actually killed, intended to kill, or attempted to kill the victim. Now, those ors you would actually put in. So if we were talking about the Minneapolis case, it would read something more like this. If you find the defendant guilty of second-degree murder, you must also determine whether the state proved beyond a reasonable doubt that he actually killed the victim. Okay? Now, from what we know, if I'm on the state side, I'm trying to expand that. And I want to expand it to include actually killed, comma, intended to kill, comma, or attempted to kill the victim, right? I want to include all of those pieces in there because we've learned some new things. And the newest thing we learned is that the individual who was killed in in Minneapolis had a lethal dose of fentanyl in his system. Now, look, let's not confuse this with the actions of the officer, okay? Because, look, eight minutes kneeling on someone's neck, I can't make any kind of ethical way to say that that's right okay but from a legal perspective from a criminal defense perspective can i take this new information and go i might be able to get my client off if i was the defense attorney oh absolutely absolutely because as we read here reasonable doubt okay if you have any reasonable doubt you have to find the person not guilty now look Are you going to have people who are going to say, well, there's no doubt in my mind because eight minutes, I don't care about the lethal dose of fentanyl. Okay, great, cool. You know, that's how our system works. That's fine. But here's the problem, okay? You have to get everybody on the jury to agree to convict. You only need one. One person to go, I don't agree. Nope not going to do it. He's not guilty. Okay. That's how simple it is. And I think when, when you have toxicology and autopsy reports that show that the person had a lethal dose of anything in their system and was in the same predicament, I think you can make the argument from the defense side that it wasn't the actions of the officer that killed him. The officer never actually intended to kill the person. Right. And I mean, I, I just, I guess I have a hard time believing that an officer would actually intend to kill somebody in that situation. Um, Not saying it couldn't happen. I just have a hard time wrapping my head around it personally. Um, But that said, can you use that to, uh, to get the person off? Absolutely. And I think what you're likely to see here because of these facts is something just like Ferguson. I think we see this go to trial. Okay, Uh, especially with this new information of the fentanyl piece and and the lethal dose of fentanyl. I think it goes to trial. I I don't think they take a plea deal, but hey, you know, that's between him and his attorney. But I don't think that's what happens. And what I think happens is, is there's a trial and then there's a mistrial. Okay, because I think you're going to end up with a deadlock jury. You're going to have those that go, I don't care about the fentanyl. He's guilty. And you're going to have those that go, hey, there was the fentanyl piece. 
I'm not so sure this was second degree murder. So I think you're going to see at least one mistrial. Uh, my guess is they're going to try it at least a second time. And, you know, are they going to go for a third time? I think a lot of that depends on the amount of money that is spent on having to try this case. And yes, I know uh, that's a poor reason to choose, but I, I do think in these scenarios, it does come down to budgetary concerns uh, and because you're going to need experts and we're talking about taxpayer money. Uh, so that's where I see that particular case heading. Uh, so it's really kind of an interesting piece here. And that's how I, I see it all unfolding. Uh, we are kind of in a, in a unique uh, time period as we look at things. Uh, we saw all the social justice messages uh, in the NFL and opening weekend this weekend. Uh, great to have football back as we uh, transition a little bit from that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting, though, some of the things that are going on with uh, some of the social justice pieces. Uh, you know, I was recently reading about how there was a, ban a van or a bus, rather, filled with NBA personnel. And the NBA has embraced the movement and there's protesters blocking the NBA bus. And, you know, seemingly very agitated and upset. And it's you know somewhat difficult to kind of wrap head around the, here's a group that's embraced this and has been a leader for a social change. But, um, you know, kind of interesting from that perspective. Uh, the other thing kind of interesting from the past weekend and, you know, as former law enforcement, I, I guess I kind of, kind of look at things a little bit from that perspective. Although I do try to look at it from every perspective and try to understand what's going on, on in all scenarios. Uh, and I know that there are things that are good and there are things that are bad. Uh, that is that is an absolute. There are cops that make bad decisions. Uh, there are cops that are bad people, uh, just like there are people who are good people and people who are bad people. Um, recently, though, there were two deputies in L.A. County who were shot, and uh, they were sitting in their patrol car. They were actually brand new deputies. I, I believe they had both been on the job maybe seven months, somewhere along those lines, and just sitting in their patrol car and gunman walks up, just starts shooting uh, into the car. And, you know, look, that's a bad guy, right? It, there, there's no way, shape or form anybody goes, hey, that guy's a good guy. And he's, he's, you know, he, he's a good person. I mean, that's is what it is. You walk up on somebody, you're really unprovoked. That's a whole different scenario. But what is a head scratcher in all of this for me is you have a group of protesters that go to the hospital the emergency room where uh, these officers were taken and you protest out there. Okay, fine. You want to protest. That's fine. But you then you block the emergency entrance and um, you have signs that say, let them die or chant, let them die. Uh, you know, that's not getting us anywhere. It's just not. Okay. Uh, if we want to fight for social change, let's do it. Let's do it the right way. Okay. And maybe the answer isn't defunding the police. And I know that's not the popular viewpoint, but from having been on the inside and having been a cop, I can tell you that less budget means less salary for officers. Less salary for officers means you're not going to get to choose the cream of the crop. Okay. And those of us who have choices, uh, because of what we've done in education, aren't going to want to be police officers, aren't going to want to be deputies. Okay. And I can tell you, as I sit here today, there is no amount of money that you could pay me to get me back out working in law enforcement. 
it's just not one of those things that's going to happen. Now, I, I left after a pretty major injury, so uh, that, that plays into it as well. But from a standpoint of where things are, from a standpoint of being an attorney and having choices, there's no way I go back. Um, look at it, looking at it from the perspective of people entering the profession, if you start cutting some of these things, how do you get the cream of the crop? Right. I think that's the biggest question here. So I think it's just something that needs to be looked at. Is it a we defund or is it do we fund more but make that funding tactical and not tactical from the standpoint of increasing the SWAT team and getting increased equipment? Tactical from the standpoint we go, we're going to increase budget, but that means we're going to increase salary. But that also means that we are going to increase our standards because I don't think you can increase the standards without increasing the salaries. Okay. I think that's a very, very important point. Now, look, I think there's other things that can be done. And I can remember back from working in law enforcement, there was, uh, I believe it was High Point, North Carolina had enacted a program. And what that program did was, here's how it worked. They, They did undercover buys with drug dealers. Okay. And they had warrants on every single one of these people that they did these drug buys with. They then brought them in to, they, they essentially arrested them all. We'll say detained all of those individuals because they had warrants, brought them in to a, a school gymnasium, right? Something along those lines. But point is, is this whole piece was put together between law enforcement, the state attorney, and some other governmental entities that put this program together. They brought them all into this gymnasium and go, hey, look, we got you. Here are the pictures of us doing buys with you. You're going to go to jail. You're going to go to prison. It's going to happen. Okay. That's option one. Option two is we're going to enact this program. And this program is going to be one that you can get out of the drug game. You can get an education or a trade and you can go go out and make a legitimate living and you'll be given the skills to do so. Very powerful program. Uh, never really saw what the results were of it, but I would challenge those out there that programs like that might be the answer. Okay. And, and I don't think there's any one answer. I think there's a group of answers that come into it. Do I support the fact that police are probably ill-equipped to handle mental health crises? Absolutely. hundred percent. Okay. I wasn't equipped to handle mental health crises. They didn't really give us the tools to do so. Uh, my wife, who is a licensed mental health counselor, you know, I could tell you from talking to her about different things, the way she as a licensed mental health counselor would handle things would be much different than I would. Okay. Now look, that's not a knock on the police on it because you got to do what you've got to do to get by. And, and that's the job that you've been given. Right. And you've been tasked with that. But maybe there's an avenue for change. So I think there's a lot of avenues for change. I don't think the answer is to just cut budget funding and all that. Um, I would like to see all of this get better. I can't get behind someone going to a hospital where any two people have been shot. I don't care who that, those two people are. I don't care if you're the worst murderer in the world. I still don't think that anybody should go and say, let them die. That's my standpoint on it, right? I've tried to avoid making any stands whatsoever. Um, but like I said, I do think there's an avenue for change. I think it is possible. I'd like to see it happen in my lifetime. Uh, I'd like to be a part of that if possible, but I'd like to see it done the right way. So 
that is that standpoint on it. We talked a lot about the Minneapolis shooting in terms of what that looks like in a jury trial and what some of the things may be difficult in terms of getting a conviction, right? Because you have the arrest, but now you got to get the conviction. All right. So time will tell how that works out. So that is what we have as far as the heavy content. I know we got a little heavy today. Uh, Let's get into a quick listener question and we'll wrap the show up uh, right after that. So listener question for today came in from D and this was a question that I got recently and it went something along these lines and it was, Hey, I, I had this crash. These are what my injuries are. Can you tell me the value of my case? Well, kind of, okay? And you hear all the time, you hear these lawyers who go, call me, I'll give you, I'll tell you your case value. Okay, well, this crash just happened a day ago, right? Not the one in this scenario, but the, the one when you hear all these advertisements from the lawyer saying, call me, I'll, I'll, I'll value your case for you, okay? You can't value a case in the first day. You can't value it in the second day, third day, fourth day. Most times, you can't value it in the week, Okay. Now look, are there exceptions? Yes. I mean, if you have a really, really egregious injury, uh, somebody lost an arm and had a multi-week hospital stay. And you know, on the first day that the person who caused the crash has a $10,000 policy. Yeah. I can tell you that you're gonna get $10,000 from that. That's, you know, not an absolute because the bar would never let us say anything is an absolute, but as far as things go, that's as close as you get to that. All right, that's the reality there. But what the true value of that case is, what the actual value, not what the payout is, you can't tell that in the first day because you don't know what the future looks like. Now, can you start to figure out what the value of a case is? Yes, but here's what you're gonna have to look at. You're gonna have to look at the medical bills, okay? Because that's gonna be kind of our, our ground foundation for it. Okay. So after a crash, you're going to have a bunch of medical bills and that's going to be what we build our house on for the case. And then as those medical bills increase, we're also going to get an idea of what your injuries are, which is going to add into your pain and suffering because the more you're injured, the more pain and suffering you're entitled to. That also then ties into your future medical bills. The more hurt you are, the more future medical care you're going to need. And the more hurt you are, the chances are, if you're working, you're going to have lost some time from work. So all that said, that's how you're going to build that up. Now, when this individual asked me that question about with their injuries and it had been two and a half months, I could give them a little bit of a range, but that range is huge because I don't know my foundation yet with that. I don't know what the medical bills are. And if I don't know what the medical bills are, it's impossible to give a really good estimate because that's your bedrock. That is your foundation of how you move forward. Okay. So really tough question to answer. What's my case worth? I can tell you, I can give you a much better analysis on what your case is worth once all the medical treatment has been completed. Okay. That's when, right? So three, four, five, six months down the line, when all the medical is done, we can look at it and go, here's what cases like this have resolved for in the past. This is where I expect it to go. So That is how that works. That is how we start to determine case value. And uh, maybe we'll get into a much deeper dive in that in a future podcast. Uh, I appreciate you all sticking with me on some of the heavy topics here today. As we looked at the jury jury, uh, instructions and, and all that and how that plays out and what we expect to see potentially in Minneapolis. Uh, That is the show 
for today uh, right here from Lawfather headquarters. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Check us out on social media. And lastly, it was really great seeing Tom Brady in a Bucks uniform. Uh, hopefully, the Bucks can turn it around. And as you can see, my trusty Eagles here, those of you watching on the video, uh, really uh, figured out how to really screw up a game and go up 17 and completely blow it. So uh, Bucks and Eagles, hey, great start to the season. Um, hopefully, uh, we turn it around collectively, Bucks and Eagles. And uh, hopefully, Brady and Gronk can get everybody together and we get everything going and great season here in Tampa Bay. As always, this is the Law Father. Law Father out. This is a cannabis podcast. Quick fix on radio influence. The, the election is going to be important, okay? Because for me, if it's Donald Trump, then I think we're all in trouble. But uh, as far as if it's somebody else, which would be Biden or I don't know who else would be, to me, the first thing he needs to do is legalize cannabis. And I'm talking about countrywide. I mean, literally, just think of the amount of money and the amount of jobs you're creating by all of a sudden legalizing cannabis throughout the country. Does that not make sense to you? No, absolutely. I mean, that it's something that could take us, you know, take a country out of a recession. Correct. You know what I mean? Just by, like you said, opening up jobs um, and creating, you know, more of an economy in, in these places that are, that are struggling. The Cannabis Podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.